how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to Creative Principles. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. In this podcast interview series, I'll be speaking with writers, directors, actors, musicians, chefs, and various other types of creatives as we bridge the gap between creativity and productivity. Here we'll be discussing the habits, routines, and lessons that help promote a successful creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on SoundCloud or iTunes. After leaving his career as a criminal prosecutor to volunteer with rescue animals, Glenn Zipper eventually found his way to producing films so he could better defend the issues he believed in. Rather than describing himself as an advocate filmmaker, however, Zipper is someone who likes to highlight issues, uncover injustices, and simply discover the truth. That said, he's also uncovered tales about Bill Murray, Elvis Presley, Pauline Kael, and now Muhammad Ali. Directed by Antoine Fuqua, What's My Name is an interesting documentary because it's a story completely told from the voice of Ali. There's no talking heads, rather, Ali is telling his story over the decades through sound bites and archive clips. In this chat, Zipper discusses the responsibility of a documentary platform, his fascination with dogs, what attracts him to a project, building a story brick by brick, and why Ali will always be a fixture in American history. If this is your first time listening, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. I was a criminal prosecutor uh, back in New Jersey, and I had a chance intersection with a straight pit bull puppy on the streets of New Jersey. Um, and you're thinking right now, I don't know how this story is going to result in him becoming a producer, but I promise you uh, I'll get there as quickly as possible. And um, once that took me to the animal shelter, and I'd never been in an animal shelter in my life and, and saw what was going on there and all these animals that didn't have a chance, I think it, that might have been a Friday, and by Monday I had turned in my badge and was volunteering at the animal shelter. And after I was doing that for um, about six months, um, it occurred to me that I was actually happy, which I was something I wasn't as a prosecutor. And then it, it occurred to me that I wanted to remain happy uh, and uh, wasn't going to be able to accomplish that by remaining or going back to being a prosecutor and an attorney. And I knew what I'd always wanted to do since I was a child was be a storyteller. And it was just one of those things where my family, um, I had uh, relayed that ambition. It would have been akin to me saying that I wanted to be a professional finger painter. Um, but, you know, then being an adult and trying to point myself in the right direction towards happiness, I said, I'm going to give it a shot and drove out to L.A. and the rest was history. How has your work uh, with documentaries kind of helped the causes that you believe in? It seems like you have several of those um, in your in your resume. Yeah, I mean, um, generally speaking, you know, um, I don't try and um, be an advocate filmmaker, but I do have a curiosity. And if I see something that looks like an injustice to me, I don't want to go in swinging like I'm Michael Moore, that, you know, and I have a the point of view or a position where I'm going to expose someone, but I do want to work with filmmakers who will go in and ask the tough questions and then come out the other side with an answer 
whether it's positive or negative. Um, and an example would be our film uh, Betting on Zero, which is a film that took a look at Herbalife. I had no opinion about Herbalife. I didn't really know very much about Herbalife, but there was an accusation that they were uh, involved in certain business practices that were arguably um, similar to pyramid schemes. And you know, we went in and made that film, and you know, we came out the other side um, with the conclusion that pointed in one very specific direction. You know, but we certainly didn't go into that film saying, "Hey, we're going to expose Herbalife as as a pyramid scheme." And you know, if you're talking about something like dogs, which is you know cause truly the only cause that I spent any real time advocating for in, in my personal life, I feel like it's just a matter of telling those stories, bringing those stories to audiences, and having the, those audiences form their own relationships with those characters, in this case, or in that case, dogs, that they begin to um, care in a way that they didn't care about previously. And in, in, in the course of that process, I learned a whole heck of a lot, and the audience learned a whole heck of a lot, and hopefully we come out the other side of that um, feeling really motivated to make a difference. Are there moments when you decide to go kind of beyond the film? Uh, did I read that you kind of set up a like charitable organization along with dogs or in that respect? Not directly, because we never want to um, you know, tell the audience that you know, there's any one solution to something um, or, or, or one charity that is uh, more deserving of their support than, than any other charity, because you know, when you have the platform of a, of a show on Netflix, if you're making that sort of suggestion, it's going to be relatively persuasive. And I think that would be unfair to um, all these other great charities that are out there. So hopefully um, when, when people watch the show and they, and they want to help, uh, there's enough out there on social media and, and on the internet and otherwise where they can find the charity that appeals to them most and, and further support in that direction. So outside of, of some of the like um, uh, focus films like that, what makes you decide to work on certain like celebrity pieces, like around Bill Murray or Elvis or Ali? What kind of leads to some of those stories? I mean, there's a few factors. Um, obviously, you want to start with: is there a compelling story? You know, there might be um, you know random superstar out there who's achieved incredible things, but their story is a relatively straight ahead narrative. Whereas if you tell stories of people like Muhammad Ali or Elvis Presley or um, someone of that ilk, Johnny Cash, like we did recently, the stories are just so unbelievably different and have such different paths to success and so many different types of obstacles that they needed to surmount in order to achieve that success. So we look for those stories. And then obviously there's the question of, has the story been told before and if it has been told before, is there a way that you can tell this story that the world hasn't seen before? And Muhammad Ali was probably the best example of that. There's been numerous Muhammad Ali examples, and when I would tell people, I documentary, they very politely say that's nice, and but I, I saw that look in their eyes, and, and I knew what it really meant, which was, why does the world need another Muhammad Ali documentary? And what we were doing was we were telling Muhammad Ali's story in Muhammad Ali's own voice, which had never been done before. There's always talking head interviews, people telling you why Muhammad Ali was important, leading you through the watershed moments of his life. But in our film, there's not a single talking head interview. It's just Muhammad Ali telling his whole story in, 
an, an epic two-part film. And that was really exciting to us. So that kind of challenge, finding a way to tell a story that hasn't been, uh, uh, telling a story in a way that it hasn't been told before is exciting. And, and any time that that presents itself, I'm going to take it seriously. The perspective is very different. As you said, there's no like uh, current interviews leading back. Um, is there any new footage in this? I saw one or two things. It might have been a recreation, but is everything archive footage? Well, everything is archive footage, but there's certainly um, there's footage in that film that people haven't seen before. There's audio interviews that people haven't heard before, uh, and uh, you know the, the the true Muhammad Ali passionate uh, aficionados you know, who have seen just about everything there there is to see about Muhammad Ali. I think they're going to be quite surprised to come across some stuff they haven't seen before. So, where do you possibly begin with something like this? Obviously, it's it's rather linear, but I imagine there's you know, uh, more than 10 times this footage. How do you kind of start to narrow that down to uh, create the story? Well, that's really a credit that Antoine Foucault and our writer, Stephen Lecker, and our editor, Jake Pachinski. I mean, they just had literally thousands of hours of, of footage and transcripts and, and audio tapes to go through. And I mean, there's no shortcut. It's just climbing the mountain. You've got to go through it, and then you, you know, you... You create you know, columns, you know, stuff that you think will be relevant to the story you want to tell, things that you think might not be so relevant, stuff that's somewhere in between. And then you just keep going back to that pile and you build it brick by brick. Was there any specific stories that you hadn't heard before that were really shocking to you that, that came out in the documentary? You know, not so much the stories that I hadn't heard before, but seeing his his entire life uh there's you know episodes in in Muhammad Ali's life that we're all familiar with you know uh, refusing induction into the draft having his um his boxing license pulled coming back you know becoming a world champion three different times changing his name um these are all things we're being familiar we're all familiar with but when you see the the it chronologically laid out before you and you see the the, the steep hill that he had to climb to get where he was. And many times he got knocked down uh, and got back up again, not just in the ring, but in his life. It's really uh, quite remarkable to see and witness. What other kind of um, things went into make like the, the time post? Like Ali's life is different where it's not just the journey of his fitness and fighting. He's very involved with pop culture. Um, what were come some of those points you knew you kind of had to hit with the story? Well, I think, you know, his name change was a big one because, you know, it's inextricable from his views on the world and religion and civil rights and racism and changed his name. There were a lot of people out there who refused to uh, refer to him as Muhammad Ali and kept calling him Cassius Clay. And, you know, there, we're in a time right now where there are some people think we're, uh, you know, in a, in a post-racism society, which is ridiculous. You know, we haven't come nearly as far as we should have. And to go back and take a look at those moments and show the courage that Muhammad Ali had and also demonstrate the fact that, yes, we've made some progress, but there's still a really long way to go. I think it's a very it was a very important thing for us to touch on, to remind people, and to help start with some conversations again. Was there any other particular reason why uh, your team decided to make this movie now, you know, versus five years ago or five years in the future? Like, what kind of led to putting this out this time? Uh, it was um, Muhammad Ali's story was something that Antoine Fuqua was passionate about, and uh, he, there wasn't a specific event that instigated 
uh, telling the story uh, when we did. Um, as a matter of fact, when we started making, uh, when we were in pre-production on the film, Muhammad Ali was still alive. It was not, um, it was not an instance where he passed away. And then the film was a reaction to that. It was just that you know, the right people came together at the right time with the right passion to tell the story, and and we set off to do it. So was there some uh, conversations with Ali before this got started, or was it all kind of the, the prep work? There were certainly conversations you know, with his with his family, and he was aware that this was happening, and there were plans to, to visit with him. They weren't sure if he would be filmed um, in, in present day to be represented in the film as he was at the time we began. But we wanted his participation, we wanted his authorization, we wanted his blessing and everything that we were doing. Just unfortunately, he passed away before we really got into it. Uh, listen to some interviews with uh, Cal Fussman, the, the interviewer, talking about his many conversations with Ali. Do you think that, I mean, Ali seems like he's the most famous person we'll ever have based on, there's there's so much culture today. Back then there was kind of a handful of channels or a handful of things to do and watch, and he was like the biggest guy in the world. Do you think he'll be always remain kind of the most famous person in his given time? I think it'll be hard to replicate what Muhammad Ali uh, did in terms of um, having the profile that, that he managed to have in popular culture, as you're alluding to, for the reasons that you've already alluded to. You know, that he did not have the benefit of Instagram and Facebook and, and social media and you know, the Internet and every other avenue of publicity that we have available to us today. He was able to have that profile just from the sheer power of his personality, his voice, and his message. And if, if that were to happen today and was amplified by you know, social media and the Internet and otherwise, it would probably be even bigger if that's even something that we can fathom. Um, and I just, I haven't, you know, I'm in my 40s. I just haven't come across any other person uh, who's come close to being that good at what Muhammad Ali was able to do. So, uh, you know, my, my money would be on they're not ever being someone quite as dynamic as Muhammad Ali and have the footprint that he had. Was there any um, stories or quotes that, that got cut for whatever reason that you kind of thought um, would be good to share? You know, they didn't make it into, this, into the documentary for whatever reason? So, you know, we had a lot of real estate to tell this film. You know, H was very generous and they gave us two, two films uh, and we got just about everything we wanted to get into the film. And there wasn't some um, uh, baby that we left on the cutting room floor that really left us heartbroken. I will say that, you know, when you get to the end of the film and you see very briefly uh, some uh, footage of Muhammad Ali's uh, charitable work and what he did later in life um, as he, as he continued his philanthropy and his work outside of the ring and I feel like that could be its own movie, and maybe one day it will be. So it's not so much that we we cut anything out, but if there was any uh, additional story that I would like to tell as related to Muhammad Ali, I think there's there's definitely a movie about everything that he did outside the ring and how much of an impact he had there. Well, it sounds like with uh, with Antoine and uh, uh, HBO backing you, you kind of really did have a lot of um, access to whatever you needed as far as uh, – 
money or rights and that kind of thing. Do you have any advice for people that are uh, starting out? I mean, I know you've kind of worked your way up to this, but advice for people starting out and how to get the rights or how to work their way around not having the footage they need or the money they need to make a low-budget documentary? Well, I mean, it always it always begins with having a uh, a passion for the story that you're telling, uh, and I think if you don't have that, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to succeed, even at a uh, low budget, independent level. Because if it's something that's just being viewed as a as a gig, um, and you know, you're just just trying to do it for doing its sake, people could smell that coming from a thousand miles away. There's times when you're working on, um, you know, uh, a higher profile project and, you know, every relationship I have and every relationship everyone else has on the film isn't working to get us what we need. And what does work, you know, nine out of ten times is we have the director you know, call the licensor and say, listen, um, can you please tell, like, let's say we're trying to license a song from, I'm just making it up, um, Led Zeppelin. And you know, whoever uh, you know their handlers are just aren't having it, no matter how much money we're willing to pay. But if we can get a message to the representatives that our director wanted to speak with Jimmy Pla- Jimmy Page and Robert Plant and tell them artist to artist why this was important to them, that actually works more often than you'd imagine. And it's because the the artist, the filmmaker who's making the film, has that passion. And when people can communicate that passion to others directly. It's a really compelling message, whether you're talking to a financier, whether you're talking to a rights holder, whether you're talking to a subject that you want to interview. If you come at them and you can credibly communicate how passionate you are for telling any particular story, that's going to move the needle more than anything else. As a producer, do you have any advice on building the uh, great collaboration to work on a project? Like, what, what do you look for when you're looking for partners or people to work with? Above all else, chemistry. I mean, it, making documentaries is, is really, really difficult. Uh, I, I always say it's a steep climb up a slippery mountain. And people that you don't have chemistry with, people that you're struggling against while you're trying to make that steep climb up a slippery mountain, it makes a difficult job almost impossible. So it's just very, very important to find people that you like working with, uh, people that you think you are additive to and who are additive to you, you know, where you're not redundant to one another. And I think if you have that chemistry and you have that value add, that's the most important thing to success in a documentary. For some of these we've mentioned, like Johnny Cash and Ali and Elvis, what does the timeline look like for that? Like You've already said several years, but how long, how long are you actually working on it over the course of those years? Well, a documentary, if you were to average out how long a typical documentary takes, it's about a year. Muhammad Ali was a bit longer because there was so much archival footage to go through, and, it, and it's actually two films, part one and part two. So that's more about you know, three years because of the research that went into it to begin with and then making two films. But a year is really the 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 critical timeline for making a documentary, and you're pretty much working the whole time. Uh, you know, you're, you're shooting interviews. Those interviews come in, they're thrown into the timeline, they're being organized, people are sourcing archive, archive footage, you have archive producers who are sourcing archive footage for you, and that's being fed into the timeline and juxtaposed to those interviews, and then you see what you're missing and what's not working, and you have to go out and get more and fill in the blanks. You know, it's, um, 
it's constant crisis management, actually, and, and, and but it's, it's the best kind of crisis management because you're creating something, and, uh, and the problem solving is part of the fun of it. And so I realize some of these, like uh, the director may be leading the charge, maybe cases where you're leading the charge, but how do you kind of plan ahead for your longevity? I see several projects listed as post-production or filming pre-production. How far ahead are you, or can you get too far ahead, or do you just kind of have a, a list that you're working on of things you'd like to uh, kind of uncover in terms of documentaries? I don't know that you could be too far ahead. I mean, the, the issue is the, the documentary filmmaking space is a very um, opportunistic space and a very competitive space. So if you're passionate about telling a story, uh, you need to be going after it as quickly as you can because there's going to be 10 other people who want to tell that story as well. So, you know, if that means I'm beginning a conversation or entering into a deal with a subject who isn't going to be prepared to sit down and start making their film for three years, well, well I'll start that conversation today and I'll wait three years. And, and in some cases, that's why you might see a credit that's so far off in the distance. And also, the various productions that we have going at any one time do ultimately become symbiotic because there's economies of scale. So if you have six or seven projects going at one time, there's definitely savings that makes each individual documentary uh, less expensive to make. Um, and that's another very important and relevant reason for why you might want to be doing more than, you know, five or six things at once. But, you know, if you get to the point where you're, you're doing 10 things at once and you're spending yourself that thin, and of course you don't have the necessary focus that you should have on everything and then the quality begins to suffer and, I've been very careful to avoid that, and if any at any point I feel like there's a risk of that, I'll pull back. But right now, I'm really happy with the, the volume and and remaining prolific, and people seem to be enjoying the film, so we're just going to keep at it. Um, how important is this? Might be the wrong uh, phrase. But let's say the subtitle, like when you write "What's My Name." How important is it to have the hook in the main title for these, uh, especially these big celebrity documentaries? You know, it's. It's, an, it's, a, it's a great question. You know, we feel like we want to uh, have those subtitles so we can present uh, a, a, um, a perspective to the audience you know, so, or, or to point them in a certain direction. So if you're watching, if you're showing up to watch the Elvis Presley documentary and you know that it's called Elvis Presley, The Searcher, you're going to go into that film with a question. Right, as opposed to just going in with, all right, I'm watching an Elvis Presley documentary. The question is going to be, why did they call it the searcher? And so your your mind will be pointed in a certain direction as you're going through that narrative, where you're trying to prospect for that that answer and trying to find why Tom Zimney wanted to call it the searcher. And that forces the audience to have a perspective on the film as they're watching it. So it's really just a way to point the audience in a direction that the director wants them to be pointed in and have them looking for the right things. Same for What's My Name. How different are documentaries, in your opinion, when you go back and watch documentaries, do you notice that they're based on the culture they're in? Like if we made an Ali movie in the 90s versus the 2000s, there may be some different perspectives on him versus today. How conscious are you to kind of keep, you know, stay out of that if you can, or do you go ahead and, and mention that this is compared to the way things are viewed today? So we, we do try and stay out of that. We try to be agnostic in the way that we tell these stories. And we want to give the audience uh, a clear-eyed view into the world of these characters and let them draw their own conclusions. 
I think once you're putting your thumb on the scale, it becomes something else. It becomes really more uh, the voice of the filmmaker that prevails as opposed to the story of the underlying subject. So we, for that reason, we try and take a step back and remain as agnostic as possible. Thank you for tuning into this show. If this is your first time listening, please log on to iTunes or SoundCloud and give us a rating. Providing a rating or sharing content is one of the best ways to help the series grow. Make sure to also follow or like us on your favorite platforms like Instagram, Facebook, or the new YouTube series we've started. And check for daily updates over at creativeprinciples.live.